Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1043. And if you're a guest with us, we've been continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to the last section of chapter 15. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, astonished by compassion. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll begin reading in verse 29. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 29. And this is what the Word of God says. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. <clears throat> so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let me ask you this morning, when was the last time you were astonished by anything? If you're like me, in these days that we are living in, you find yourself increasingly saying to those around you, I am not at all surprised by that. And yet, as we come to this passage of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel, we come to a scene in which Matthew says that people involved in that scene were astonished. They were astonished by the compassion of Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches that God is a God of compassion. He is a God who suffers with people. He is a God who feels pain and sorrow and seeks to alleviate it. He is a God who cares so deeply for us, He is ultimately concerned about our welfare and about our joy. And it's God's compassion for humanity for, that from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden has offered a way back to him for all who would receive it. The Bible teaches that God is so compassionate 
that he sent his only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the height of God's compassion is seen on a mountain called Calvary, where God displayed his compassion for humanity through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and for your sins. And through his resurrection, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. And even today, God continues to display his compassion for you and me. In a world that seems to be unraveling at the scenes, God continues to pour out his love and his compassion as he withholds full and final judgment for a time so that he can continue to extend his mercy and his grace for all those who have never turned to him to be reconciled to him through the work of his son, for all those who've never received the forgiveness of their sins and been lavished upon by his grace, for all those who have never turned to him in repentance for rescue, God continues to display his compassion for a time. Jesus displayed his compassion. From the earliest part of his ministry, Jesus felt compassion for the multitudes. He had a special compassion for the sick and for the suffering, and he healed every sort of affliction. He had compassion for the weary and for the worn. But most of all, his compassion was displayed for the condition of the souls of those that he ministered to. And while his acts and words of compassion were primarily displayed to his own Jewish people, as Jesus grew closer and closer to the time of his crucifixion, he displayed his compassion upon the Gentiles. And the Bible says that when he did that, he found unusual faith among these Gentiles. And the Bible describes the faith of a Roman centurion and the faith of a woman whom Jesus healed her daughter who was possessed by a demon. And in this passage of Scripture that we've just read together, as Jesus completes his ministry to the Gentiles, Matthew records two accounts of compassion that astonished both the crowds and the disciples. So would you notice with me, first of all, that they were astonished by compassion through the power of Jesus, found in verses 29 to 31. Now, these verses have a parallel account in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. And Mark's account is very, very helpful in setting the scene and help us, helping us really understand what is taking place in these verses. And I'm going to rely heavily on Mark's account to inform us as we walk through verses 29 to 31. So notice in verse 29 that the scene shifts immediately from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us in chapter 7, in verse 31 of his gospel, that after Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman, he returned to the region of Tyre, and then he went through Sidon, ultimately to the Sea of Galilee, 
and he ended in the region of the Decapolis. And so verses 29 to 31 of Matthew 15 are taking place in the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a group of about 10 cities in a predominantly Gentile region that were authorized by the Romans to mint their own coins, to run their own courts, and to have their own armies. And Matthew tells us in verse 29 that when Jesus arrived in this region, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. It's actually a familiar picture in the Gospel of Matthew. For if you remember in the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew records Jesus going up onto a mountain and sitting down to teach the crowds. Now this shouldn't surprise us that this scene is taking place. Because according to Matthew chapter 4 verses 24 and 25, from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, crowds from the Gentile region of the Decapolis followed him. And so it should be no surprise to us that when Jesus left Sidon and he landed in Decapolis, word spread throughout that region that the one that others had followed had finally arrived to them. And so Matthew records that great crowds came to see Jesus on this mountain. Now, if we go back to Mark chapter 7, do you have whiplash yet? In verses 32 to 35, as the people of that region gathered around Jesus on that mountain, they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now, friends, this is a crucial moment in this account. A group of people from that region brought this man to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Well, Mark says in verses 33 to 35 that Jesus took him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephata, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and the man spoke plainly. Now you'll notice how Christ dealt with this man. He dealt with him individually. He took him aside from the rest of the crowd, and he ministered to him privately. He ministered to him intimately. Mark says that Jesus put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. He ministered to him intentionally. Jesus looked to heaven and he drew the man's gaze upward. Jesus ministered to him sympathetically. He sighed, identifying with the size of this man. And Jesus dealt with him powerfully. He issued a strong command and simply said, be open. And the Bible records that instantly, immediately, this man could hear and this man could talk. Mark says that he spoke plainly. But that's not the most amazing thing that happened here. 
What happens next in verse 36 of Mark chapter 7 is truly astonishing. And we've seen this before from Jesus. After Jesus brought this complete healing to this man, he charged all of the people that were on the mountain with him not to tell anyone. But listen to what Mark says. Mark says that the more Jesus charged them, the more zealously the people proclaimed it. The more Jesus said, be quiet, don't tell anyone, the more zealously, the more passionately, the more loudly the crowds proclaimed the miracle work of Jesus. Now look back at Matthew 15. That's why in verse 30, Matthew says that great crowds came to Jesus. Why did they come to Jesus? Because the friends of this man that Jesus just healed in Mark chapter 7 zealously proclaimed the work of Jesus. And Matthew says they brought to him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. And notice, just so no category is left out, and many others that couldn't even be mentioned in this verse. And they put him, them at his feet, and he healed them. Now, do you want to really understand what's going on in verse 30? Look at verse 38. Matthew says that the crowds numbered 4,000 men besides the women and the children. And some estimate that if you factor the women and the children into the crowd, there could have been as many as 20,000 people on that mountain with Jesus. And if that doesn't astonish you, look at verse 33. Because Matthew says in verse 33 that this crowd of 20,000 stayed on that mountain with Jesus for three days. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how many in this crowd Jesus healed. But he does tell us that everyone who was lame, everyone who was blind, everyone who was crippled, everyone who was mute, and many others were put at the feet of Jesus on that mountain, and Jesus healed them. Now, here's what's interesting in the text. The word put literally means to cast down or to throw down in haste. But it doesn't mean to throw down carelessly. No, no. The people in this crowd, they were desperate. They had heard the zealous proclamation of how Jesus had restored life to this man who couldn't hear and who couldn't speak. And they were desperate to get their friends and their family members to Jesus. And they thought if they could just get them to his feet, Jesus would make them all better. They were desperate, not careless. And the range of the afflictions that were represented by this crowd and the subsequent healing that took place on the mountain 
They serve to remind every single one of us this morning, there is no need too great that Jesus cannot meet. The Bible says that the people who were sick went away cured. The people who came with only one arm or one leg functioning went away with both arms and both legs functioning. The people who were blind left being able to, this, to see. The people who could not hear left with their hearing intact. The people who could not speak could now speak plainly so that everyone could understand. The people who couldn't walk were now leaping for joy because they had encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these miracles displayed the power and compassion of God. And that's why the crowd was astonished. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 15. And so that crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and notice carefully, and they glorified the God of Israel. Matthew says they wondered. The word wondered means to be struck with awe. The crowd witnessed something that defied human explanation. And at the end of everything that they saw and everything that they experienced on that mountain, they could only look at Jesus and stand in awe of his power. But not only that, they glorified the God of Israel. The God of the Old Testament because they were seeing in this moment that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament revealed in his son Jesus Christ and these miracles of healing were not performed simply for the benefit and the blessing of the people they were performed so that God would receive glory from the Gentiles because you see, friends, you see the end of everything that God does through the display of his power is so that he would receive glory. And not just glory from one or two. God desires glory from all of the nations. And we're seeing in this text a picture of worship and praise and awe. Of giving God glory for his power and for his might, a glimpse of the glory that he will receive from all of the nations one day when every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group stands before his throne in all, giving him glory. This, this is a glimpse of that future day. And what a contrast. What a contrast that these Gentiles would stand in awe and wonder and amazement of Jesus while his own people ridiculed him and rejected him. These Gentiles 
They saw the display of the power of Jesus and his compassion, and they were amazed. They were astonished. They worshiped. And the Bible says that his own people, when they saw the display of his power, they said the only reason that he did that is because he's using the power of Satan. What a contrast. But if that doesn't astonish you, listen to how Mark describes this crowd's response in Mark 7, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he does all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were astonished, Mark says. But listen to how he said it. They were astonished beyond measure. They stood in such awe of Jesus, you couldn't even measure, you couldn't even factor, you couldn't even describe the awe, the wonder, and the amazement that they had for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you notice what else they said? Listen to this phrase. It's fascinating. He has done all things well. Friends, when Jesus gives life, he gives it abundantly. When he gives a burden and a yoke, he makes sure it's a light one and an easy one. When he welcomes the weary, he gives them rest. When he sets people free, they are free indeed. He has done all things well. Look back over the valleys of your life. See how the Lord brought you out of them time and time again. See how his mercies were new to you every morning. See how his steadfast love endured forever. See how his promises were yes and amen in Jesus Christ. See how he never left you or forsook you. See how nothing could have separated you from the love of God. See how no one could have snatched you out of his hand. See how he was with you to the very end of the age because he has done all things well. Look back over the mountains of your life. See how the Lord gave you heights of joy. See how at his right hand were pleasures forevermore. See how he filled you with inexpressible joy and full of glory. See how the joy of the Lord was your strength. See how he made your feet like the feet of a deer, setting you secure on the heights. See how he lifted you up on wings like eagles. See how time and time again he has brought you through, he has delivered you, and he has given you the victory. He has done all things well, look at the present circumstances of your life. If you know Christ this morning, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you know Christ this morning, you have been adopted as a beloved son or daughter into his family. If you know Christ this morning, you have been redeemed through his precious blood. You have been forgiven of the sins of your past your present, and your future. 
The grace of God has been lavished upon you. You have obtained an inheritance. And your inheritance is guaranteed through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You have been given the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. The word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And the confidence of Christ that all things are working together for good in your life this very moment. And if God is for you this morning, friends, who can be against you? He has done all things well. Not convinced yet? Look at the prospects of your future. If you know Christ, you've been called. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. And one day you will be glorified. He is preparing a place for you. And if he has gone to prepare a place for you, you can be confident. You can be absolutely sure this morning that he will come back and he will take you to that place that he has prepared. If you know Christ this morning, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will be kept in the palm of his hand until you are presented before his throne, blameless in Jesus Christ. He has done all things well. And these miracles of healing, oh, they're good news. They're good news for a culture like ours that is so focused on the body and outward appearance. But don't miss the point this morning, friends. By healing all of these bodies, Jesus was showing the Gentiles, Jesus was showing his disciples, and Jesus is showing you and me that he is the only one powerful enough to deal with souls. He is the only one powerful enough to heal you from the cancer of sin in your soul. Do you realize this morning, friend, that the healing and the saving and the forgiving of your soul is your greatest need? Your greatest need is not the restoration and strength of your temporary body that will wear out one day. Your greatest need this morning is the release of sin, the rescue of your soul, your soul that will last for all eternity. If I can't convince you this morning, maybe... J.C. Ryle can. He said, let us not forget that our souls are far more diseased than our bodies. Let us learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Our souls are afflicted with a malady far more deep-seated, far more complicated, far harder to cure than any ailment our flesh is heir to. They are, in fact, plagued by sin. They must be healed and healed effectually or they will perish everlastingly. Do we really know this? Do we feel this? Are we alive to our spiritual disease? Alas, there is but one answer to these questions. The bulk of mankind do not feel it at all. Their eyes are blinded. They are utterly insensible to their danger. 
For bodily health, they crowd into the waiting room of doctors. For bodily health, they take long journeys to find purer air. But for their soul's health, they take no thought of it at all. This is the world. This is the world that you and I live in. Focused on that which will never last. That which is temporary. When the real ailment in our lives is that which is eternal and will last forever. Forever. Do you know what Ryle says? He says that the greatest miracle is not the miracles that we've read in this text this morning. He says the greatest miracle is when God, through the compassion of the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes a person who is separated from him in their trespasses and sins, and they give, get new life in Jesus Christ. He says that, that is the greatest miracle. And so the question is this morning, does Jesus still perform miracles? And the simple answer to that is yes, he does, because every single time he rescues a soul from sin, it is a miracle. It is a miracle of compassion. And so I wonder this morning, Christian, are you astonished by the compassion that Jesus displayed through his power? Does the compassionate power of Jesus cause you today to stand in awe of him? Does the compassionate power of Jesus cause you to give him glory? Christian, as you look back over your life, as you ponder today, and as you anticipate the future, can you really say, like this crowd, he has done all things well? Christian, have you ever considered how you could display the compassionate power of Jesus to others? Non-Christian. Do you see in this display of the compassionate power of Jesus your need? Not for the healing of your body, but for the healing and the saving of your soul? Non-Christian, doesn't the emptiness of your soul, the pains of your life, and the fear of death testify to you this morning that you need the compassionate power of Jesus in your life? to heal your soul. Non-Christian, isn't the Word of God and the Spirit of God convincing you and convicting you this very moment that you need Jesus to rescue you? Would you look to Him today and receive the healing of your soul. Well, they were not only astonished by compassion through the power of Jesus, verses 32 to 39, they were astonished by compassion through the provision of Jesus. Like verses 29 to 31, there is also a parallel account of these verses in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. But don't worry, I'm not going to use Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Now, you may be saying to yourself, if you've been following along in this series, uh, haven't we already seen a scene like this before? Uh, 
didn't we see in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus perform a miracle similar to this? Uh, you would be correct if you noticed that. And many scholars have suggested that Matthew and Mark were retelling the same story, except this time they left things out and they made all kinds of errors. Now, I'm going to show you through the text this morning that uh, these stories are similar, but they are not the same. In fact, when you get under the hood and you study the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 carefully, there are many differences. For example, in the feeding of the 5,000, it was primarily to Jews. In this account, it's primarily to Gentiles. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee. This account takes place in the Decapolis. With the 5,000, Jesus used five loaves and two fish. In this account, he uses seven loaves and a few fish. With the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. In this account, there are seven baskets. In the 5,000, the crowd was with him one day. In this account, they were with him three days. In the 5,000, it was the spring of the year. They sat down on the luscious green grass, the Bible says. In this account, it was summer, and they sat in the dirt. In the 5,000, they tried to make him king. In this account, there was absolutely no response except from the disciples. So you'll notice in verse 32, after Jesus performed his miracles of healing and the crowds glorified him, Matthew says, Then Jesus called the disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. The phrase, I have compassion, literally means to be moved in the deepest recesses of your heart and of your soul. It's a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the situation. Jesus was deeply moved, but he wasn't just moved to notice the need, he was moved to supply the need. He had compassion. The crowd of, uh, we estimate roughly 20,000, had been with him three days and all of their supplies of food had run out. And because of his heart of compassion, he was unwilling to send them away hungry. So notice what the Bible says in the text. Jesus took the initiative... And he called the disciples to himself. It's interesting that he did this. Because if you recall in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples approached Jesus and said, Jesus, we have a problem. In this account, Jesus approached the disciples and said, we have a problem. And many speculate that the reason why Jesus approached them is because they were unwilling to show compassion to the Gentiles. In verse 33, it's even more astonishing. Look at verse 33. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place and to feed so great a crowd? After everything these men have experienced with Jesus, let alone in the last two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, you would think by this time they had got the point. They still didn't get it. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you study your Bible in the context, 
and you look a little closer into Matthew chapter 16 in the wider surrounding context, Jesus gave these disciples a warning about the leaven of the Pharisees. And their response to Jesus in verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 16 show clearly that they still didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. And he says to them, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And Jesus was saying to them, Instead of being confused, instead of being perplexed, you should have been saying to me, Jesus, we can't meet this need. Only you can meet this need. Jesus, our resources are empty. We're looking to you and you alone. And because we can look to you for your provision, we have no need to worry. They should have been saying to Jesus, Jesus, you've just modeled compassion for us. And now, because you've modeled compassion, we want to model compassion. Oh, but no, no, no. They were still looking to themselves. We know that by the language in verse 33. Where are we to get this food? Where are we to find provision to meet these needs? In verses 34 to 36, we see the miracle took place in exactly the same way that it did in the feeding of the 5,000. Notice the action. Jesus spoke to the disciples. Jesus directed the crowd. Jesus took the loaves and the fish. Jesus gave thanks. Jesus broke them. Jesus gave them to the disciples. And then Jesus multiplied them as the disciples distributed them among the crowd. It's a reminder to all of us this morning, friends, in this simple miracle account that Jesus doesn't just see our needs with eyes of compassion. Jesus is willing to provide what we need. That there's no need in your life this morning, no matter what it is, that's too big for God. There's no need in your life this morning so small that you think God wouldn't care, God wouldn't notice, God wouldn't understand. The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. He is a God of provision, and His compassion and His provision have no limits. His infinite, steadfast love, mercy, and grace will never run out. And that's why Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He'll supply them all, every single one of them, from the smallest to the greatest. And do you know why I can say that to you this morning with confidence and authority? Because of verse 37. Look at verse 37. They all ate and they were satisfied. And after they ate, they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you're not careful, you'll miss something really important here. There's two Greek words used in the account in Matthew 14 and in this account for basket. 
And in Matthew 14 and verse 20, the word that's used for basket means a little wicker basket, the kind that you would carry for a picnic. The word for basket in verse 37 literally means a large hamper. Now, those of you with lots of kids, think about your laundry pile. Which would you rather have, a little basket or a big hamper? The little basket would never do. And the pieces that are left over in this account would never hold the little basket. So Jesus used a hamper. Do you see how abundantly he meets needs? So I can say to you today, there's nothing in your life going on that's too great that he can't handle. There's nothing too small or insignificant that he doesn't care about. He is sufficient in his provision for you. Now, one commentator made an interesting observation. He said that when the Lord ended each phrase of his ministry, he ended it with a feeding. When he ended his ministry in Galilee, he fed the 5,000. When he ended his ministry in the Gentile region, he ended it with the feeding of the 4,000. And when he ended his ministry before he went to the cross, he ended it with a meal with his disciples. Do you know what Matthew is showing us, friends? Oh, don't miss this. This is good. I can't wait to tell you this. This meal, this picture, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the provision in the meal that is to come for those who belong to Christ. And the prophet Isaiah, he was given a glimpse of this meal, this final feeding that would take place. And he described it as a final feeding, listen, that would take place on another mountain. And it would be a feast, it would be a meal like you've never experienced even on your best day at a buffet. You have never experienced a meal like this one. And this is what he said in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Just listen. Listen with your sanctified imagination this morning. See if you can just picture what this meal would look like on this mountain. He sets it up in verse 1 of Isaiah 25. This is what he says. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. He's done all things well. Plans formed of old, they're faithful and they're sure. Faithful and sure. And here's his description, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, that veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You've never been to a meal like that before. And this, this in Matthew 15, it's a foretaste. It's a glimpse into the glory, the peace, the rest, the unspeakable joy that will be all those who know Christ on that day. So Christian, do you believe that God will supply your every need through the riches of his glory? Weary parent, do you believe today that God will strengthen you and empower you to carry on? Worried saint, do you believe this morning that God already knows your need and that in his time he will be faithful to provide it no matter how small, no matter how great? Christian, do you see today that God wants you to stand in awe of him, to wonder at his power, to wonder and gaze at his provision for you. To relish in his glory over your life. He wants you to see that and stand amazed in his presence. To those who are suffering. To those who are heartbroken. Oh, don't misinterpret your affliction this morning as a sign that God does not care about your plight. See it as a sign today that he's drawing you to himself so you can have a greater taste of his glory and his presence in your life. He's able to supply your needs. And would you see today, Christian, even if you don't understand, God's compassion will never fail you. Never. He does all things well. And non-Christian. In this picture of provision from Matthew and Isaiah, would you see the compassion of Jesus for your soul this morning? Would you stop trying to earn his approval? Would you stop trying to work for acceptance? And would you see non-Christian today, his power and his provision through his son for your soul? And would you see that there's a place prepared for you at his table if you will just turn from your sin today and you will just turn to Christ and you will trust in him, you can experience everything that Isaiah described on that day. It's not too late for you, non-Christian, but one day it will be. One day it will be. His compassion is being extended to you this very moment. But there will come a day when that compassion will end. And it will be too late. 
come to his table today, non-Christian. Come and be like the psalmist and taste and see that the Lord is good. He's done all things well. Does Jesus still astonish you? Do you still stand in awe of his power and his glory? Or have you become so hardened, so complacent today that texts like this and experiences like your life leave you saying, I'm not at all surprised. I'm not a bit astonished. Oh, when we see Jesus for who he really is and what he's done for us, there's only one response to stand amazed in his presence. Let's pray. Oh God, our hearts are grateful today for your word. We pray that you would use these accounts in our lives today to encourage us and strengthen us. 